Hey everybody, welcome back to the program. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, your one stop for all things Lutheran, theology, philosophy, pop culture, many, stuff. many, stuff, many rabbit trails. Hmm. As always, uh, we are your host, Pastor Christopher Gillespie, Squirrel, and Pastor Don Riley, the Predator and the Techno Viking, respectively. Mm-hmm. And we are back with a brand new episode for you all. Uh, we're going to dive into Heiko Overman's biography of Luther one more time. Maybe. Once more into the fray. Once more. Say. Once more into the breach. To oh, the clutch. breach. That's it. Yeah, there you go. And um, Clutch has got a new album out, and it's exceptionally good. Hmm. And he okay. sings, he actually sings about making crab cakes on one song. Really? There's an entire song dedicated to making crab cakes. In fact, the song is a recipe for how to make crab cakes. The video is phenomenal. Huh. I don't yeah. know this Clutch character. It it just goes to the point that you could sing about anything as long as you have talent. It'll mm, sound good. Okay. Any, yeah, you can put it anything to words. As a Clutch music fan, to words, anything yes. that they do, I love. So thus, this proves it. There's a uh, online guy, a YouTube kind of star, if you, got, if you like, who did a song a day for a couple at least a year maybe maybe more Hmm. um and sometimes the the topics were very outrageous like a recipe Mm -hmm. um but when you've got talent right and you can you can pull it off you have musical creativity and know how to play instruments and all that kind of sort of thing uh it's pretty anything sound good yeah he did jonathan mann's his name okay nice double n like a german very cool so the breach the fray the place the space hmm we are going to dive back in. We'll be on page 308 and 309 of Heiko Overman's biography, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. Yep. Follow along at home, kids. Follow along at home. And um, let's just dive right into it and see where we go. So this section is actually on Luther as Bible translator. In fact, there is a complete Bible title page from the Wittenberg 1541 edition published for you all to see in the biography. Yeah, we've we've talked about that extensively. I think uh, as we've gone through these podcasts, how 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 important that was for Luther in his time, right? To mm-hmm. get back to the source, right? Yeah, at Fontes, not be reading all these derivative materials, but just digging back in, and then mm-hmm. actually being very careful in translation um, because very. translations and, are I, confessions yeah. as well. Like I think right? I uh, I mentioned, or maybe I didn't, but it took him twelve years to edit and complete the Old Testament. He was never satisfied. He was always updating it. In fact, he's probably the first person to publish multiple editions of his works in such a way like we do today. If a book sells well, you get second, third, tenth edition printings. Luther was constantly updating and tweaking and editing his Bible and then producing updated editions. But by our standards, I mean, one, he was a bestseller, but two, he's Mm -hmm. doing short runs, right? Pretty much. Well, he's a spiritual hyperactive. He can't ever rest on his laurels. Plus, he's teaching the Bible. Every day mm-hmm. in class, he's Old Testament professor, and one of my favorite pieces of information that I found out is that at one time, Luther and Matthias Flacius Illyricus were teaching in the same in adjoining classrooms, both teaching okay. Hebrew and Old Testament, and just the amount of brain power at work in those two rooms. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, of pouring over the texts, picking apart the grammar, explaining the theology exegesis it's just the the amount of brain power at that university in the 1530s and 40s was remarkable by any standard and it was basically iowa in germany and yeah exactly it was it was it was the end of the road waterloo iowa kind of situation yeah it was amazing no offense iowa people 
Mm-hmm. And or maybe a little. <laughs> a little. <laughs> it, you're better than Nebraska. There we go. You're better wow. off than Nebraska. Everybody's better off than Nebraska. Where apathy mm. is the state motto and just a state of mind. <laughs> you said it. I'm not endorsing it. Shout out to our friend Paul Solik. <laughs> yep. Love you, Paul. So let's dive into it. The history of <laughs> slumlord in uh, in Nebraska. It's an oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, we just lost two listeners. <laughs> so let's dive into this. The history of the Luther Bible shows us a completely different Luther. One who knew his limits and was well aware that the translation could only be accomplished cooperatively. Mm-hmm. He never considered the task to have been mastered. There you go. Yep. For example, when he is making his translations at the Coburg in 1521, uh, he is sending back his translations to Melanchthon to check. Yeah. And probably Bugenhagen at that time. Uh, who else? Well, Karlstadt was there at the time, but definitely Melanchthon. Luther leaned on Melanchthon a lot. Yeah, the courier was busy. To Very on. busy. And he, was, he was in hiding, kind of. <laughs> and to give you an idea of what kind of mind Melanchthon was, he was barely out of his teens when this is happening. Hmm. He's a relatively young man. And With how many languages under his belt? Countless. Three, four, five. Something. At least, at least. And this is the thing is that, well, Matthias Flaschius is kind of credited with it because he wrote a treatise on how to interpret sacred scripture. But the mm-hmm. Lutherans essentially invented modern hermeneutics for all intents and purposes. Yeah, that, departing from the medieval fourfold mm-hmm. scheme, right? Which we right, talked about. Right. Mm-hmm. In that they didn't rely on, let's say, the sentences of, of um, the Lombard mm-hmm. for their exegesis. They just translated the text out of the Masoretic, out of the Koine, and then chewed on it. And went around and around and had conversations and debated the text itself. And they weren't looking for commentaries on the text. In fact, it's a misnomer that Luther's commentaries on the Bible that we have were originally called commentaries. They weren't Melanchthon, a humanist by training, is what mm-hmm. is who actually coined the term commentary on da-da-da-da-da. He's the one who put that down. Luther just considered them a collection of his lectures on biblical passages. Oh, I see. Yeah, so, the idea of a, of a Bible commentary, this right. is new. The, the point being that Luther would never think to just sit down and write a commentary on the Bible. Yeah. As modern commentators might do, or, or work it out even in the classroom, because he's preaching it, he's teaching it, he's in conversation about it, he's translating it. It's his whole life. Yeah, and I think uh, you and I know that commentaries are generally, you know, they collect a lot of dust on our shelves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they're there, they're reference books. Um, a lot of times, you know, they're digging deep into yeah, some academic aspect, some, exercises. Yeah, exactly. Some kind of academic book. There are a few commentaries that we have mm-hmm. that we've uh, that are very much Leviticus by Kleinig. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much about trying to draw you into the life of the church mm-hmm. or to be you know eminently practical as far as both sure. teaching and pastoral care. Right, and, and Leviticus is one of those. Um, but generally speaking, their their academic exercises mm-hmm. are kind of boring right. and dry, and don't really answer questions right. that your people are going to have. And that's the thing. When I was at seminary, there was a lot of criticism of Luther's quote unquote commentary on Scripture because it was not to academic standards, let's say, to critical mm-hmm. standards. And he spent too much time talking about things that weren't in the text. 
Oh, the, I see. The Pope, or talking to his students about ministry, or talking about the church in general, or talking about Paul's conflict with Peter or the disciples of James. He would go off, as you know, on these rabbit trails. Mm-hmm. And his sermons, that it makes his sermons rather impenetrable, or at least not really relevant in the present tense, especially as church apostles. Um, not so much as house apostles, but as church no, apostles. The house apostles are fun. Yeah. But the church apostles are just these rambling. Just they go on and on three pages about the fanatics, for example. Or, it's like reading the news, the religious newspaper. It, yes, it really is. But you read Luther's lectures on Galatians, for example, especially the greater le- Galatians mm-hmm. lectures, where he thinks he's going to die before he gets to the end of them, and the plague is in Wittenberg, and they're having to evacuate the city. And fifteen thirty-five ish. Yeah, and that Galatians commentary, I think the reason it still sticks around to this day and is read by everybody, regardless of their Christian denomination, is because, like you said, it's so imminently apl- applicable. It's immediately mm-hmm. applicable. You can read uh, a paragraph of what Luther talks about in his Galatians lectures and immediately go, this translates directly into my life as a Christian. Yeah, Period. It's, it's, it's poignant, right? Right. You know, or, or rich. Right. Um, incidentally, though, I'm even, you know, when did I graduate from seminary? 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I still had like a class on Psalms. I had a class on mm-hmm. the Pauline epistles, Romans and Galatians, where Luther was maybe mentioned in the, in the syllabus, but right. uh, wasn't used as even a secondary text, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Never, never mind even a primary text, which right. is what you would have expected at a Lutheran seminary, I think. But you'd be wrong. Mm, I don't know. That may have changed since then, but that was the case then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, it was a seminary where uh, we think of the seminaries less academically and more practically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're training pe- men to be pastors, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Ideally. Ideally. Um, now, there are some who go to seminary really just to be Bible scholars, I suppose, mm-hmm, and then sure. maybe they go on to grad school and that kind of thing. So you have that tension between, you know, the academic venture, which is ivory tower, you know, pie mm-hmm. in the sky kind of thing, mm-hmm. or I, head in the sky, head in the clouds, that's it. Head in the clouds, pie in the sky. Either way. And uh, and and those who are like, I, I need to know how to be a pastor, right? Yeah, right. And that's where I think Luther's commentaries or whatever we want to call them, his lectures are uh, very valuable to us. Well, it's very interesting to that point. I was listening to an interview with Mike Rowe, who's mm-hmm. most famous probably for his show Dirty Jobs, which I just, I didn't realize until I mentioned it. It was on for 12 seasons. Oh, but, I know. Long time. Yeah. But now now he has, a, what, the top podcast? One of the top podcasts. He has, yeah, world. he has two podcasts, plus his Facebook page where he writes and mm. does videos every day. And uh, Mike brought up something from the last Republican uh, run-up to the elections. And he thought it was probably uh, Rubio who had made this comment, but it was one of the Republicans who wanted the nomination who said, we need more welders and less philosophers, which the sentiment is in the right place. We need more blue collar, you know, mm-hmm. workers to contribute to the economy and, and society and less people who stay in college their whole life or yeah, whatever. People of the earth, you might say. Right. But what Mike said, which I thought was, and my son actually really made a big deal of this. He was talking to my wife about it on the way home from school is... Mike said, well, why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't mm. we have philosophers who can draw a, a bead, a, a perfect bead? And how come we can't have welders who read Nietzsche or Aristotle? Why can't we have both? Why can't we elevate the intellectual conversation of people who are essentially freelancers, electricians, yeah. plumbers, welders, and so forth and so on? Journeyman, electrician, yeah. something like that. Yeah. That why is it? Why is it looked down upon if you get a two-year degree from a vocational technical school in, let's say, being an electrician? Mm -hmm. Or why is it that you should go into everlasting debt to get a four-year degree in 
you know, um, lesbian feminist dance theory. <laughs> Underwater when, basket weaving. Right. When you know there's no job waiting for you when you go to school, and yet now you're fifty, eighty thousand dollars in debt. Right. It's like yeah, right, and I and I, yeah. I, I think, think that's what where... Luther does, though. I think what Luther's commentaries do is they're here is a person at the height of his intellectual power. For example, when he's doing the Galatians lectures. Uh, um, he's translated the Bible numerous times now, edited it numerous times, knows it, probably the entirety of the Bible knows it down to the very um, particle. Yeah. And yet when he lectures, what he says is imminently practical at the same time. Yeah. I I imagine, I mean, well, I know that he was, his objective was to share the Bible with the masses. If Correct. Like, right? right. The democratization, right. I guess. You might democratization, there you go. Of the scriptures. Um, and that's what we're seeing, actually, with things like Khan Academy online, mm-hmm. you know, just right. free collegiate level mm-hmm. um, academic courses. And, right. and you can, yeah, you could go work as a plumber all day and then come home and, and take a class, you know, high level abstract right, exactly. math or something. Right. And, uh, and, and so both work your mind and your body, the whole, right. you know, have the whole person well, be addressed. This is one of my personal hobby horses is pushing for pastors who are great theological teachers to stay in the parish and not go to the seminary to be professors Hmm. is what we need is more teaching pastors. We don't need more pastors leaving the parish to go to the seminary and depriving not just their own congregation, but the circuit and the district of their skills and abilities. Yeah. And they don't need to have a doctor before their name. I, I appreciate the kind of the historic precedent that that's a um, you know it's a, it's, a, yeah. Yeah. it's a title of of, impor- I, of some importance I, suppose. I earned mine and then google that's basically how this works out i earned my phd in phd in church history reformation mm-hmm. studies wrote my dissertation on luther and then google just shattered that entire thing <laughs> just went oh well we'll just wikipedia this we don't really need you to come and lecture on it yeah yeah and that but that doesn't mean that it it ceases to be valuable to you. No, even though well, you it's valuable to title. my congregation because I yeah, put absolutely. it to use in service to my congregation right. and whatever congregation wants to utilize those, that skill set. Because, yeah, you're right. I put in the time, I paid my money, um, mortgaged my future. <laughs> so to get this, you know, to get this degree. And then in the end, I turned about face and, and took a call into the ministry rather than going into academics. And what was interesting at the time was everybody, and I mean literally everybody around me except for my wife said I was making a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. How, why well, and the the leading question was always why would you throw away all that work? Yeah, well, her opinion is the only one that really matters anyway. At the end of the day, absolutely. <laughs> and but, I thought uh, that was very strange that that so many people though said I was throwing away all my work rather than what a what a blessing what a gift this will be to the congregation you serve. Isn't that isn't that something? I mean, I even said when I went to seminary, the uh, particular our church body was in particular bad shape, mm-hmm. and it wasn't clear what was going to happen if there was going to be a big, you know, fracture and schism, and um, and I so I just I went in saying, well, if there's a church for me when I get out, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. If not, um, you know, all of all that I learn will be a blessing, you know. Uh, wherever I right, end up, somewhere. Uh, end up, whatever yeah, vocation. I mean, as a layperson, or you know, mm-hmm. teaching, you know, or, uh, right. just even just having insightful questions in right. a Bible class, just to kind of lead the conversation, or maybe on a podcast. I guess now there you go. Well, to give you a very small practical example, uh, part of my it's been a, like a six year project, and for those of you who live in the Midwest or Upper Midwest, you'll appreciate why it's taken me so long to do this. But I have filtered out all the books in my church library. <laughs> and replace them with all of the books for my dissertation studies. 
So the church library is now all of the books that I've donated from my dissertation studies. I, w- I was thinking about doing something similar, you know, in, a, in the parish, because you look in the shelves right. and you're like, ooh, boy. That's questionable. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you want to read that. And then, uh, and so then doing something similar and mm-hmm. just like slowly like, you know what, I could use those bookshelves. Exactly. That's, and yeah. maybe you could use the book. So there right. you go. That's the way I look at it too, is I, here's all these books that I've been carrying around with me forever. Uh, I'm not going to read them again. They were, you know, they were, I read them once or twice and I'm good. I'm going to donate them to you. Now they're available to you to read. And we can have a conversation around these books versus these other books, which are of questionable theological integrity. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to hand on all those books to your pastor sons. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> no, those, those are set aside. Those are the special books. Those are. <laughs> <laughs> the comic books? Yeah, yeah the comic plastic. books. They're in plastic in the basement. Plastic, yeah. plastic wrap, plastic bin. Uh, awesome. So, that's right. Oh, absolutely. So here we go. So he knew his limits. He was aware of his limitations as a translator. So it was a cooperative venture on Luther's part then. Mm-hmm. Um, and he never considered himself a master of the task. So Overman continues, before dinner every Wednesday and Thursday, from the summer of 1539 to the beginning of 1541, he assembled his council of experts his quote-unquote Sanhedrin, as he called them, (laughs) at his home, so that a further thorough revision of the translation could be made among competent colleagues. We are beggars, Luther says. The sentence Luther wrote on a scrap of paper shortly before his death mirrors worldly wisdom, not dying resignation, and stems Mm -hmm. from experience with his work on the Bible, its translation into common speech. Yeah. So his Sanhedrin, I mean, we use that kind of in a pejorative sense, right? Like, like <laughs> right. we do with Pharisee. And I'm sure uh, Luther he, was using it that way too. <laughs> Tongue yeah, and cheek. Maybe. Tongue and Tongue cheek. And che- but right. but uh, Sanhedrin being the, the, the really the, the textual scholars yeah, of right. Jesus' day, right? Right. Exactly. No, I there like were the that. scribes usually is how it's translated, right? Right. And like, I think we were talking about this last episode. Um, uh, yeah, because Overman brings it up is that for Erasmus, he goes into the Bible to find answers to his questions. But he's already mm. formulated the, the answer. So he's really mm-hmm. just looking for affirmation. Yeah. Luther, and so Erasmus's, Erasmus's experience exegetes the Bible. Mm. For Luther, the Bible exegetes his experiences. So therefore, when Luther reads the Bible, as with the case here with his colleagues, he reads the Bible and then tongue-in-cheek, jokingly, calls them the Sanhedrin because he recognizes, oh, yeah, I get what we're doing here. <laughs> yeah, right. We're doing something very similar. We're wrestling with the word of God. Mm-hmm. It's just that yeah. we're, we're striving for Christ and, and they weren't. Yeah. So rather than going to the text to find justification for whatever your behavior, actions, thoughts, mm-hmm. um, rather the, the, <laughs> the scriptures tell you why you behave and act and think the way you do. Right. They diagnose mm-hmm. and sometimes prescribe, sometimes mm-hmm. just simply give a description. Yeah. But nonetheless, point the finger and go, yeah, that's you. Uh, whether you want to believe it or not. Right. <laughs> Here's yeah. the truth. 100%. So Oberon continues, his earliest, Luther's earliest biographer allows us a glimpse into the laboratory. This is a long quote. When the whole German Bible had gone out for the first time and one day of tribulation taught the next, the doctor began work on the Bible from the beginning again with great seriousness, industry, and prayer. And because the Son of God himself had promised he would be present where people gathered in his name and prayed for his spirit, Dr. Luther immediately organized a Sanhedrin of his own, made up of the best people available at the time. Here's a side note. As soon as he published his Bible, he was attacked and criticized. Mm -hmm. You can read a short treatise he wrote on defense of his translation of the Psalms, for example. And it's 
it basically lays out his exegetical method. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he was attacked for for what in particular? Particularly for adding words. Yeah, like, like those justification by faith right? alone, apart from works of the law. Mm-hmm. And he has to defend the sola. And Luther's point is that's the spirit of the letter. Mm-hmm. I'm not translating today, like the ESV, it 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 strives for a more literal translation. They call it a word for word translation. But even then, you know, you'll find a text like we did, um, like I did last Sunday, mm-hmm. where they made an exegetical choice, right? Absolutely. A, a, an interpretive choice, and said, mm-hmm. "Well, your faith has made you well." Right. When the word is sozo, it, I mean, it could mean your faith has saved you. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and they made the choice to say it was about healing and not about right, salvation. Right. right? No, that's a great point. And there is no such thing as a literal word-for-word translation of the Bible. Because no, there can't be. when you're confronted with Greek words that have five to 14 different translation choices, depending on context, you're making a choice. Mm-hmm. It may be a pious choice, but you're still making a choice. Whereas Dr. Luther had no illusion that he was making choices. He had no illusion that he was making decisions about the text, doing right. violence to the text even. And thus the need for cooperative um, collegiality. Right. And where the difficulty comes in is like like the example I gave you, that's a double entendre maybe, right? Mm-hmm. It means, it actually can mean two things. Mm-hmm. And right. Maybe even Jesus meant it both ways. Mm-hmm. But then when we translate it, we translate it one way, we can't translate it both right. ways. And how many people at the present tense make that subtle distinction between healing and salvation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the, and how it's, how there's that interplay even in that, in that uh, pericope, you know, it's going right. back and forth. This is the, uh, what is it? Oh, it's the healing of the lepers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ten yeah. leapers, mm-hmm. or they, the leopards. As leopards. They there we go. But they have spots. <laughs> valid point. Valid point. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> oh goodness! So each week they came together at the doctor's monastery for several hours before dinner. Mm-hmm. After the doctor had first looked through the earlier published Bibles, and in addition consulted Jews and experts in foreign languages, and asked old Germans for proper terms. Once he had several sheep cut up so a German butcher could tell him what every organ of the sheep was called, he, he used to come to the consistory with his old Latin and New German Bible, always bringing the Hebrew text as well. Yeah. Master Philippus Melanchthon always brought the Greek text along. Everyone had already prepared himself for the text that was to be discussed and had looked through the Greek and Latin as well as Jewish, Jewish exegetes. Then, as president, he proposed a version and let everyone speak and listen to what everyone had to say with reference to the quality of the language or the exegesis of the old doctors. Look at that. Would you not pay anything to be in the corner of the room during that conversation? Yeah, good night. I mean, that would be like, um, well, this was like uh, the Bible seminar. No, it was the Jesus seminar, Mm -hmm. right? Right, but faithful. (laughs) Yeah, where they were trying to figure out what parts of the text weren't actually textual right uh, and they did it by like casting marbles basically yeah marbles <laughs> uh, saying well majority of us agree that this is actually jesus a uh, jesus saying so we're gonna you know they only agree that two things in the gospels were actually jesus and uh, unanimously you mean yeah the aramaic yeah. well yeah, almost unanimously you get bible scholars together you're never gonna have 100 percent agreement but they at least majority agree there's only two sentences in the entire gospel that jesus actually said everything else was made up after the fact so, uh, yeah, very different enterprise. Upside is those two things both have to do with the resurrection of the dead. So, <laughs> Hey, look at that. Even when you try and explain away the text, you can't escape that the central point of the entire Bible is death and resurrection. 
This 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 point about the Jewish exegetes is interesting, isn't to me it? Because especially considering the years that this yeah, took place. Well, and and the fact that at least in my in my um, seminary education, we avoided them like the plague. We mm-hmm. didn't. We we don't go back and consult. Right. Like how would? Uh, uh, so what are we talking about? What are these? Some of these Hebrew texts. Well, names. there's Moses Malmanides, who was a famous medieval exegete, Jewish mm-hmm. exegete. Um, took me forever but to learn how to pronounce. But that. even ancient ones, right? I mean, what oh, what are yeah. the what are the kind of commentaries on the on the Bible? There have been commentaries like Midrash, the Midrash. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We do, we don't, or at least I didn't use them at all. I didn't until I got into the parish, and I was just curious, especially in Torah. I wanted to read Torah and see how the rabbis interpreted, like you know, who was Jacob wrestling with, or um, well, obviously this, creation. Yeah. Well, and even the the sacrifice of Isaac or mm-hmm. lack of sacrifice of Isaac. Right. You know, how they received, you know, the ram caught in the thicket. Um, mm-hmm. I think Luther pulls from that in the Genesis lectures in particular. Well, you know, it in, seems kind of to that point, but... I actually have a uh, my Jewish Bible, uh, study Bible, um, mm-hmm. on that very text on the sacrifice of Isaac. Even the Jewish exegetes admit that that narrative uh, mirrors almost exactly the Christian confession about Jesus. Yeah. That it's messianic, at least. Yeah, that it's messianic, at least. They have to acknowledge that that's a messianic text. And so, yeah, it's fascinating because they make, and even their translation choices then for the Torah. And mm-hmm. and what I did is I had Luther's German Bible, the 1911 edition, because the more modern editions have been tinkered with and and they're not really Luther's translation anymore. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, at the turn of the last century, I had Luther's German Bible open alongside the Jewish study Bible. And then the ESV, and I just I just read them side by side, yeah, and compared what Luther decided to translate a text as, like the sacrifice of Isaac, versus the rabbis versus the ESV ed- editors. Mm-hmm. I think it's super. It taught me a lot. Yeah, I did that when I was uh, in exegetical classes. I you know with the with the I didn't do it with books. I did it with the computer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you could have three parallels going, and I would have Old Testament classes. I'd have Luther's mm-hmm. Bible next to Septuagint next to the Hebrew, right? you know, and, and use that for translation. And uh, usually, usually there's conformity, but uh, then there's departures, you know? Right, right. Yeah. But but we see this uh, playing out in, in, in the Gospels where Jesus is interacting with the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. Correct. A different opinion about the resurrection of the dead right. in particular, right? Right. And another like, side note, and I think this is an important comment is one Heiko Obermann wrote a book towards the end of his life entitled the roots of anti-semitism where he actually tracks where anti-semitism begins hmm. as anti-semitism and then how it becomes what it is by the time of the second world war because for those of you who don't know uh, when you walk into the holocaust museum in washington there's a quote from luther on the wall when you walk in yep and so uh, when i once during seminary went to a, a synagogue and asked the rabbi to teach me hebrew and once he found out who i was he was curious once he found out what Christian affiliation I was. That was the end of that conversation. And I could not at the time understand why he became so dour when I yeah. mentioned I was Lutheran. And then after the fact, I found out and I, oh, okay. Yeah. But, and he's not entirely wrong. I mean, Luther was co-opted by the Nazi. He regime. was copied. Yeah, exactly. By Viner, the, mm-hmm. uh, one of the myth makers that Hitler had uh, write a new history, a revisionist history of Germany. And Luther was a part of that along with um, Goethe and others. Mm-hmm. But the point being is that Luther wasn't an anti-Semite. He was anti-religion. 
Hmm. He was anti-Judaism, anti-Islam, the Turks. He was anti-anything that wasn't Christ. So you'll notice then Luther defends the Jews up through 1528. He even writes a famous treatise on why Jesus was, you know, a Jew. And then after, by the mid-1530s, he's soured and he says some things that are indefensible, actually. They're just unforgivable things. But... A lot of people read that and go, he's an anti-Semite. No, he's not an anti-Semite. That doesn't come around for another couple centuries. And the German anthropologists are primarily to blame for that. But um, point being is that he's not, he's he doesn't hate Jews because they're Jews in the same right. way that the Nazis or that white supremacists do today. He doesn't hate them, but rather he sees any religion that isn't Christianity is the synagogue of Satan, is the religion of Satan. Yeah. He's and, not quite like Clint Eastwood in the Gran Torino or something. Right. No. But the point is that Luther understands that uh, uh, the theologians of the church, they are the public defenders of the faith against the attacks of sin, the world, and the devil. Mm-hmm. And that anything that's not Christ is false religion, and therefore behind that is the devil. Yeah. And, and needs to be refuted publicly. And needs publicly refuted because why? Because people's faith is being put into question. Mm-hmm. Um, they're being tempted to sin and unbelief. But it's, refuted, uh, importantly, with the word of God. With right? the word of God. Where, whereas Luther, where he goes wrong later, is he uses the word of God and then he just loads up. He makes it personal. It's super personal because he expects them to repent and convert when they hear the gospel. And when they don't, and this is after the Peasants War too. So there's a lot of personal stuff going on with Luther mm-hmm. when he starts to lash out and not just at the Jews, of course, but at other theologians and even people on the faculty who disagree with them, um, as he could get really whipped up, really worked up and be very, very violently vitriolic with his language. Yeah. He, he could, he's one of those personalities. He could literally do damage to you permanently just by talking to you. <laughs> Devastating. Right. But it's interesting here that again, it goes to the point. He doesn't hate Jews. He doesn't hate judaism for the sake of hating jews no and he he doesn't even disregard their opinion about the tax right exactly he simply says you're not of the same religion you're not of the same faith right but it'd be kind of like uh listening to you know a philosopher or scholar talk to us about genesis Mm -hmm. um you know but outside of faith you know they being outside of faith it doesn't mean that they're not going to have some insight right Right. exactly with the jordan pearson lectures on genesis Mm -hmm. i think did we talk about that i don't know it's a very Gnostic take on Genesis with some Aristotle peppered in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's looking at Genesis from the psychoanalytical perspective. Oh, yeah. I linked to it. It was episode 36. Okay. So two episodes ago. But like I had said, uh, you don't really have to use filters when you listen to him because his take on Genesis is so obviously not within the Christian historical creedal Christian tradition mm-hmm. that you can kind of listen and go, huh, oh, yeah, I can see how you got there as a psycho analyst as a psychotherapist i get that okay you're looking right. for the tropes and you're looking for the myth the mythology and you're comparing this to other religious myths and so forth i get that okay but the problem is is that sometimes we approach the text with so many mm-hmm. presumptions right yeah that yeah. that we actually fail to even see maybe even the point sometimes i think you mm-hmm. know you come, you come to it like um you know you were raised in the heroes of the faith kind of uh, right. bible bible study bible well, there's actually an old book called martin luther hero of the faith yeah it's like a comic book that CPH but anyway if you're ra- if you're raised thinking of like the scriptural characters as being these great and noble heroes right and then uh, you might actually miss some of the stories that are less than noble like yesterday was the commemoration of moses <laughs> yeah less <laughs> and, than uh, noble 
Yeah, Moses is, yeah, super noble. Uh, I mean, he might have been a prince of Egypt, but uh, mm. yeah, even his leadership of Israel is uh, a little yeah, questionable. Yeah, you think? God, kill me now. Kill me. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> I hate these people. Kill me. <laughs> yeah, I know you said only hit the rock, you know, however many right, times. But, right, uh, You know, I got my own ideas here. That's right. I can do it better. So to continue then, Oberman now continues, the open-ended and thus necessarily common search for the right translation does not preclude certainty of faith, nor does trust in the word of God make critical study of the text superfluous. There you go. That's a great mm -hmm. little sentence there. It o is. The open-ended and thus necessarily common search for the right translation does not preclude certainty of faith. You're not going to lose your faith translating the Bible. Mm-mm. And, and at least speaking for myself, it actually has deepened my faith. Well, and I wonder about that because I think we, maybe it was in the last episode, we talked about like not doing like super in-depth word studies maybe with the parish mm -hmm. um, because, but, the, but this is the reason why that some people would criticize that is that like, well, when you, when you give them like three meanings to the same word or 10, right, right. Um, now that, now they're going to doubt the text, whether it's what, what they've even read. Right. Like, no, it's just, you're expanding the text to... Um, maybe a greater understanding, like we talked about with like a double meaning. Right. Oh, no, for sure. I've, I've had people, especially before I learned how to listen mm -hmm. <laughs> better and ask more questions and, and give people actually um, more regard for people's insight into the text. Intellect. Uh, <laughs> intellect. Um, I would have people say, I don't even read the Bible anymore unless I'm at Bible study with you because I know I'm just going to read it wrong. Hmm. And that's that forced me to repent of the way that I teach in Bible yeah. study because I was discouraging people from just going home and reading their Bible because we spent way too much time getting into the nitty gritty of certain things. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the danger. But on the flip side, you do want to, you know, bring out the richness of the text, I think, as well. Yeah. And I think that's the art of teaching is mm -hmm. to, yeah. like, again, like we're talking about with Luther's Galatians lectures, the art of uh, of teaching is to take the text, hold up some some very specific words at a very, that are critical at a particular spot in the passage of the verse, and then say, okay, let's spin this out and so that you can understand it. Yeah. And the so the danger is that, um, that you present the text as being kind of uh, dark, Right. Yeah, and if you don't have the right, if you don't know the original languages, you sh you have no business telling me what you think this means. No. So yeah, so it's kind of degrading to people's own, like you said, intellect or just right. really to their faith. You know, their ability to just hear God's word faithfully. Right. Well, on the other side, the other ditch is they've been asked their whole life, "What do you think this text means?" Mm -hmm. And they, and then they're allowed to run free with it. And to your point that you just made, that's usually when we wrestle with the text, do violence to the text, take our presuppositions into the text with us. Hmm. Because so maybe the more maybe the more rabbinical method would be something like, um, uh, so we read this, uh, what does this mean? And then they respond, mm -hmm. and then there's a gentle guiding. Well, could it right. not also mean this? And right. Just kind of, you know, um, try to, like you right. said, spin Suss it out. out. Right. Mm -hmm. And I do that more and more, especially the past two years, where I ask the question, do you think that's what this text is pointing huh. to, or do you think I've just kind of run off in a different direction? Ah, uh, yes. So make sure you distinguish. Right. Like we were in adult Bible study opinion. last night reading John 15. And that's uh, that's some pretty heady stuff. Really heady yeah. stuff. And when he starts saying things like, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And if you are in me, then God is in you. But the Holy Spirit is in me. But it's the Holy Spirit that I will send for myself. And you're like, wait, what? How many cups yeah. of wine did you guys have at dinner? This is crazy. <laughs> and 
Yet then he, you know, in the midst of all that, the setup to it is when he says, you know, I got to go. And Peter says, I'll, I, I'll die for you. And Philip says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. In the, in the context of that whole post-dinner conversation, when Jesus um, says where I'm going, you can't follow me yet. Yeah. And yeah. then says, you know, the way, the way that I'm going. Then he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What I pointed out was I asked the question, they know where he's going. He's been telling them the whole time where he's going. They know the way to the kingdom. The problem is they don't want to accept that as the way to the kingdom. Even when Peter says he'll die for Jesus to protect Jesus, Peter still doesn't understand what death is. Well, and, he certainly will prohibit Jesus from dying, right? right. Jesus can't die. I can die, but you right. can't. Yeah. And that when Jesus says, I am the way, the exodus, he mm-hmm. does that in the context of his death. And that the way is the way of the cross. The road mm-hmm. to heaven leads through the cross and so an open grave is the door to eternal life Mm. and it's the ultimate witness to faith death yeah and yet and then i turn around and go but is that what this text is saying Mm. or am i reading that into the text because i want to make everything about jesus i want to make everything about death and resurrection i want to make everything about the cross and so let's have a conversation about well do you read that in the text is that what the text reveals to you I've, I've wondered why that particular taxi, uh, broadly speaking, what, mm-hmm. I don't remember which chapters they are, but uh, those those chapters of John, mm-hmm. the upper room discourse, I guess yeah. we call it. Yeah, farewell uh, discourse. The farewell discourse. They're n- not heard uh, in our lectionary, at least the mm-hmm. one year. Yeah. Um, they're kind of avoided. And hmm, wonder, because it, it, it seems to be critical to me, especially, mm-hmm. especially what we call the high priestly prayer, mm-hmm. right? That right. there may be yeah. one. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and yet we don't really hear it, even mm-hmm. even in the prescribed readings for Holy Week. You would think that's where it would pop up. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Not not uh, so much. Maybe because it's uh, it is so challenging, you know, mm-hmm. for sure. And yeah, it requires a lot of nuance and a lot of subtlety. Yeah, because there's a well, lot flying around in there. And it's probably one of those texts that it works best in context. So yeah. if you had the opportunity, maybe have like the Word of Promise Bible or something where you can yeah. just listen to it straight yeah, through, right? Um, then in that context, then leading into the passion, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, I think it's helpful there then. Well, when he starts saying, well, you know, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And then he starts saying things like, but if you keep my word, the Father and I will come and we will make our, we will tabernacle with you. Mm-hmm. And then goes on to say the Holy Spirit will actually be in you. And then you, and, you know, I made the comment, I go, if you ever want to just stop a conversation because you're tired and you just want to get out of it, just lean forward and say to your friend or whoever it is, do you know God lives inside of me? <laughs> I said, Jesus says that in that text. He literally says the Holy Spirit will take up residence in you, in you. <laughs> yeah, and it's not the first time they've heard it either. Not the first time. And yet, if you were to say that out loud, even to a Christian, God lives in me, they'd say, what? What do you mean God lives in you? What do you, I mean, really? You really believe God lives in you? I'm like, well, I. I that's because what that Jesus says that in the Gospel of John. He says it right here. Yeah. Yeah, it is a kind of a deal breaker or a conversation ender. <laughs> it's it's a strange thing, man, because we either try to take God captive and then go, I've got God in my heart. I know where he's at all time. Or we don't believe that. And then we put him out there at the edge of the universe somewhere. Mm-hmm. Either way, like you were pointed out, either way, what we try and do is just like take hold of God. Yeah. And and say, I got this. I'll, I'll decide. I'll tell you. Yeah. And we, I think we've diagnosed that in that, and maybe that particular text leads us to it too, that the, it's not your spirit, it's it's the spirit of Christ, it's right. the Holy Spirit. And, but we often think of it like, oh no, it's my spirit. 
you know, mm-hmm. that's at, yeah. that's at work and doing good works. It's like, no, actually, that's God in 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 and through you working. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, it's your like holy possession, if you like, you know, because yeah. you've been joined to Him. But yeah, um, but it's not yours. Like, uh, it's not your substance. It's not mm-hmm. from uh, your creation. It's right, his. right. Yeah. And then he says after the comma, nor does mm. trust in the Word of God make critical study of the text superfluous. Hmm. Again, it is the word of God. It's the published will of God. That doesn't mean, though, that you shouldn't dig into the text and be critical. It's not going to undermine your faith, and it's and it's not a waste of time. Right. We might say. Yeah. So the scriptures do not reveal themselves to everyone in the same way. And many a man gets lost in them, as Luther explains in the vivid words of Pope Gregory, quote, An elephant drowns in the sea of scripture. A lamb that is looking for Christ and perseveres stands on firm ground and reaches the other side, unquote. Oh, so how you come to the text matters, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. If you're a lamb and, and seeking a shepherd, mm-hmm. you'll find one. If, right. you're, if you're just an elephant looking for a pool to swim in, <laughs> you'll drown. Exactly. Which goes to the point of why you would want to call your Sanhedrin around you. Mm-hmm. Because you recognize that uh, there are times when we plod like an elephant, and there are times when we go forward like a lamb. But without your brothers in Christ around you to check you, how do you know? Yeah, we have all the expressions for that, like uh, the forest for the trees, you know? Yeah, That's right. The forest for the trees. Right. It is not he who knows everything, but he who allows himself to be guided that finds solid footing in the Bible. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. It is not he who knows everything, but he who allows himself to be guided that finds solid footing in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as pastors, you know, that we were talking about kind of this ivory tower, you know, I'm always right, you're wrong, kind of, you've never read the Bible correctly, that yeah. kind of perspective. I, in my experience, I found that the questions um, that come in, in the context of study, they do change my approach to the text right. often, you right. know, they change, change my mind about uh, what, or maybe the, the perspective that I thought uh, I had on the text was just a little off kilter, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, through conversation with if you like normal people <laughs> yeah <laughs> not weird weird pastors um you know the the lens gets focused and you can see the text you know, more clearly almost like iron questions. sharpening iron yeah exactly Obermann continues saint augustine's distinction between knowledge and wisdom cognition and faith is central here a lot of people don't appreciate the fact that augustine pretty much is like the OG of modern psychoanalysis or psychology. You read the early church fathers and they say a lot of stuff, but Augustine really goes deep into his mental state. Yeah. Well, he knows Western philosophy. Right, right. right, Exactly. Very well versed in Neoplatonism. Very much. Mm -hmm. Loves Cicero. And so when you read the Confessions, for example, I don't think you really appreciate how radical what he says is at that time. Because we're so grounded in the language of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, I think that's why Augustine's confessions are still so popular, amongst other things. It's because they resonate with us because we live so much in the a life of the mind. Yeah. So the fact that apart from schooling his intellect, man needs training as a human being between God and the world has been repressed again and again in Western tradition. Let me back that up. St. Augustine's distinction between knowledge and wisdom, cognition and faith is central here. The fact that apart from schooling his intellect, man needs training as a human being between God and the world has been repressed again and again in the Western tradition. So basically learning who we are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, our, and our, um, 
our, what's the thing? What's the word? I'm losing the word. Uh, our relationship between, you know, to God and, and to the world. Right. Or, or as Luther would say, right, faith toward God and love toward one another. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, the mat- that we need we need the scriptures to to bring us back to that, <laughs> right? Yeah, so we don't run away with ourselves. Mm-hmm. The magic word scholarship has led to a reverent acceptance of scholarly systems or marginalized great masters from the Middle Ages to our day, in an often curious oscillation between overconfidence and tired skepticism. There you go. We we know it all, or we can't know anything. Right. It's yeah. It's hopeless. Or I got this. I've I've been here. This is my first rodeo. Yeah, we were talking about uh, this uh, amongst my elders in regards to confirmation, mm-hmm. and they were kind of struggling with like, how do we communicate to people that confirmation is just kind of a landmark in a, in a lifelong catechesis, yeah. right? From yeah. from from birth to grave. Um, and you know, unfortunately, not everyone, even in that room, uh, regularly attends Bible study for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. And so, so you have to ask the question: How are people perceiving the whole catechetical enterprise? What we're doing as pastors and teaching, right? Faith? Yeah. Do they are they receiving it as as instruction? Are they receiving it as reform? Are they receiving it as um, <laughs> actually? Uh, re- uh, what do you want to say? Repentance? Mm-hmm. Um, are they receiving it for conversion? I mean, even right? Yeah, yeah. And and I would argue it's actually more of the latter, right? That yeah. that we're the reason why we're continually in God's word is to be brought from unbelief back into belief, back yeah, into faith. Yeah. Uh, because we, we, we daily struggle with our own doubts and with the confession of this world, which runs contrary to Christ, for example. Well, what's even more interesting to me on that point is that Luther intended the catechism to be a bridge into worship. Mm. And rarely, if ever, outside of Luther scholars who taught me that, I have never been told that by any pastor or any seminary professor or anyone that I've ever talked to. It's only been Luther scholars in my reading of Luther scholarship that that was brought out to me. And not just the third commandment, right? Which which is clearly about worship. No, like the whole of, of the catechism obviously is about worship when you really think about it sacraments, prayer, the keys, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, so forth and so on. The t- even the table of duties, what does a pastor owe his listeners? You notice right. everything under the pastor's job, the vocation is, it's word stuff, mouth stuff. But then you go to what do the what does the congregation, what do the listeners owe the pastor? It's all ear stuff. Right. All of vocation is bent towards the worship of God because that's our primary vocation as Christians, according to Dr. Luther. And so once I read that and realized, oh, the reason that this isn't, gaining any traction in the congregation or hasn't is because there's no relation to the worship of the church yep. and the education of the church. They're like it's two abstract sub- doctrinal kind right. of concepts. Well, and-, and to give a great example, when I first got here, when I taught new member classes, catechism classes, someone else had to teach Bible study. And okay. it took me about two years before I went, this is stupid. Why am I, this is dumb. Why you should be in the Bible study class and I should be using the Bible study as a vehicle to teach the catechism not teach you the catechism and then explain how important it is to come to Bible study and how important it is to come to church on Sundays and so forth and so on. Because yeah. the especially for kids, when you catechize kids, you're, you're building this bridge for them into worship. You're giving them ownership as members yeah. of the congregation of everything that takes place there. Well, and I asked uh, the day school kids, I said, you know, you memorize the catechism there. Yes. They nod their heads. Um, and then we tried to confess two different parts of the catechism, and they struggled to confess it. And I said, well, if you memorized it, why don't you remember it now? Mm-hmm. And uh, 
what, what is the di distinction between memorization and say learn by heart mm -hmm. right how do you learn something by heart it's it's repetition it's liturgical exactly. it's worship it's right? liturgical yeah so you you're using it regularly in your in your daily prayer using it in even in the corporate worship of the church mm -hmm. in bible study it, it it's the language that permeates what we do because it grounds grounds us in faith in Christ and, exactly. and his sacrifice for us. Right. But uh, and so that should matter not only for your adult Bible class, right? But for Sunday school curriculum, mm -hmm. for confirmation instruction, what you're right. doing in a day school if you've got one of those, is that everything that the catechism should be thrown through that in particular, right? right? And it's but it's, this is the thing too because I've gotten pushback from the pastors about this to your point that we re we redid our entire Sunday school curriculum around your point, mm -hmm. and then redid Bible study, adult Bible studies around your point, and then everything, including worship, was what's the point? Yeah. And a lot of it came out of my reading of Leah because this was a point for William Leah, big point mm -hmm. uh, in his catechesis yeah. of his congregation. Um, in a way that I really haven't found anywhere else outside of like Dr. Ken Corby, who was a student of Leah's. But um, so basically, yes, he, he draws on Leia and Zasa, right? So. Yeah, he really does. And is really a great apologist for Leia because he can kind of separate out what's good from what is not useful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a, another watershed moment for me as a pastor to, to look around and go, oh, we've got all of these disparate, these kind of tendrils, Sunday school, confirmation, worship, adult, but they don't really seem to be um, share anything in common other than we're all in the same place geographically. Right. And so what right. do we do to tailor this the entire life of the congregation, to your point, around the catechism? Around right, and not the just the catechism. The That's right. So it's catechism. Within it's, the context of the liturgy. Right. And in the hearing of God's word. Um, so, yeah, my catechism materials, how does it go? It's it's a scriptural text that leads to a to a confession from the catechism, mm -hmm. you know, of our doctrine, but then into the life of the church and like a part right. of the liturgy or a hymn or... or one way in the way that that those things are brought to bear and well, maybe you've run into this in the same way that we say use your baptism and then people go what do you mean <laughs> um and then we have to kind of explain vocation and crosses and so forth likewise when you say that the life of the christian is liturgical that's the yeah. same question what do you mean the life of the christian is liturgical and i think a lot of that's been lost and this is my own personal prejudice so take this with it for what it is but because we do divine service setting three the historical lutheran liturgy every sunday and our confession is the same every Sunday, and the focus of the preaching is the same every Sunday, then mm -hmm. that informs the Bible study, it informs confirmation, it informs Sunday school in such a way that when you're in your vocation, the language of the historical liturgy is your language because the repetition of it, like you pointed out, is learned. It's ingrained in you through repetition. You don't have to memorize it formally speaking because you're memorizing it in the midst of the worship of the church yeah. and so outside of the church then you can sing the gloria you can sing the song too so you can sing whatever it might be you can confess and pray in the language of the liturgy in such a way that um it binds you to the church catholic wherever you're at at any time right. any place and then the whole use your baptism thing becomes even more clear hmm. within the context of living you know a liturgical life but I've received pushback from other people at certain times and places who argue, well, you can't use the same order of worship every Sunday because people will get bored. You right, mix but it do up. you get bored brushing your teeth? Yeah, probably. But does that mean it's not good for you? Well, that's why uh, we got rid of the kids' birthdays. We got rid of the kids' birthdays because we do, the, we do it every year. It's boring at this point. Mm. So no. now we just surprise them randomly on any given day and go, today's your birthday. That way it's exciting and fun. 
Sometimes we celebrate the kids' birthdays, but with different kids. You know, we just like to mix it up. Makes it exciting. Uh, okay. <laughs> but but the point here, again, is that, uh, particularly with catechesis, or mm-hmm. with reading the scriptures in general, um, it's not ma- just a matter of intellect, but it is, it's truly about your day-to-day life. It's how right. you relate, not, uh, not right. only to God, but to one another. Right. Well, and we know this at Higher Things. We're told constantly kids don't like hymnody. Kids can't memorize hymns. They're too d- difficult. And then mm-hmm. you and I know, well, thousands of kids, actually. Yeah. Thousands upon thousands of kids who have favorite hymns, who've memorized the entirety of the historic liturgy. So, mm-hmm. you know, can sing evening and morning prayer, can sing vespers, matins, compline. They can do it all. And yeah. it takes very little effort whatsoever. And then end up influencing their congregation. Right? Yeah, precisely. Who, who may or may not um, have treasured those th- those things as gifts and receive them and right. continue in them. And maybe that's the key point is that we don't receive them as gift. Hmm. We don't receive the Bible as gift, to Luther's no. point. And because we don't receive it as gift, we think it's a birthright or we're entitled to it. That's when we end up doing violence to the text. Basic instructions. Right? Basic instructions before leaving earth. Or we do violence to the worship of the church because we believe we're entitled. And it's like better. We know better. We go looking for better words. We go looking for better forms of worship. We go looking for better songs, better prayers, better everything. Because, well, God's word is so common and ordinary and anybody can find it anytime. Mm. So easy. But this is the point, as Oberman continues, the elephant Luther sees drowning in the scriptures finds credulous successors. Until swept away by the spirit of the age, it must yield to a new giant, which unmasks its predecessor as unsuited for swimming and exposes it to ridicule. Hmm. That's great. The spirit of the age. Our friend C.S. Lewis talks about this, as does Herman Sase. They both talk about this in their own generation of being swept away by the spirit of their age, the zeitgeist, and mm. not and not recognizing because you don't pay attention to your spiritual fathers, for example, that... Yeah, somebody already came up with this idea and tried to implement it. It didn't work then. It's not going to work now. Right. You know, you're not the first person to read. Well, actually, he points on. The ever new masters of philosophical innovation ride high for a time with their Plato or Aristotle, Hegel or Heidegger, each one promising to be a reliable guide to the safe shore. The answer key. Yeah, exactly. We don't need John chapter one as the hermeneutical key of scripture. We've got Plato. Hmm. Secret decoder ring, right. maybe. Or maybe more practically, Hegel, who popularized synthesis, mm-hmm. really destroyed really synthesis. destroyed pre-modern exegesis. Pre-modern exegesis, you have a thesis and you have the antithesis. It's this mm-hmm. or it's that. It's law or it's gospel. Binary, Hegel comes along and, and says, eh, it's actually gray. Everything's gray. It's glossable. Mm-hmm. And Fifty so, shades of, yeah. Right, and so the Hegelian dialectic is to find the middle ground, the synthesis of the two. Hmm. And thus the question, what do, what do you think this means? Neither right nor wrong, but what? Or let's agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah. Or everybody's right in their own way. Everybody has their own truth. I made that assertion last week in Bible class that probably the thing that's most aggravating about Jesus for me um, is how binary he is. Right. Either you're for me or against me. You know, mm-hmm. you're either in the light or you're or you're or you're of the darkness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Right. Like, right. Wait a minute. What about the shade? You know, <laughs> everything in John's gospel is essentially that thesis antithesis. Mm-hmm. Actually, the Psalms, yeah. Isaiah, the whole Bible. <laughs> yeah. Luther calls it categorical in the bondage of the will. 
He refers mm, to this okay. as categorical. That you have to read the Bible, the scriptures categorically. What is not Christ is the devil. Whatever mm-hmm. is not the way is falsehood. Whatever is not life is death and so forth and so on. There's no, and even Luther actually argues this against Erasmus in the bondage of the will. Now I think about it. There's not some, he says, there's not some like space between life and death where we just stand and make choices. <laughs> you know, we would call that like the demilitarized zone, some neutral That's safe right. zone. We're not quite dead yet. Right. So, but for Erasmus, that middle ground between like truth and falsehood is where you and I make those choices. Mm. That That's actually where God wants us to be, is in that middle ground to make either the right choice or the wrong choice. Rather than a part of his sheepfold and his flock. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Listening to the voice of the shepherd. Right. Alone. <laughs> right. Alone. Exactly. And so, yeah, Luther would conceive of Erasmus as being a great elephant. Hmm. Each one promising to be a reliable guide to the safe shore. Luther does not deny the importance of his philosophical training. But in contrast to scholastic tradition, late medieval scholastic theology, he does not construct a scholarly system. Nor does he offer, quote unquote, dogmatics that purport to provide security, but for their credibility actually depend on the reliability of the philosophical underpinnings. Hmm. You and I see this all the time with natural law arguments. Yeah. That people import Aristotle into the scriptures. Hmm. Willfully do it, actually. Especially Lutherans who should know better. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the catechism, which is probably as close to dogmatic as as you're going to get from Luther. Sure. Uh, At least as an organized one. And, Mm -hmm. you know, revision after revision, years and years of effort there to Mm -hmm. try to distill the faith into, um, you know, something... You know, like for example, with the uh, the creed, it's three articles rather than uh, in the medieval system it was twelve. I think, yeah, something like right? that. Yeah. So why? Because our confession of God is is, is Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Yeah. Uh, and so that's why he said, "Why are we dividing into twelve? What on what basis? What philosophical mm-hmm. basis right. would you do that? Because um, when when you can clearly confess the uh, the tr- the Trinity mm-hmm. in the way that we understand the creed right. as an example, but you know you have the the kind of the three chief, well three of the chief parts mm-hmm. uh, that would be I already mentioned the creed. You also have uh, Lord's Prayer and and the commandments and how these are not philosophical constructs; they're just confessions of from right. the Scripture, right? And the chief confessions from the Scripture. Mm-hmm. When you pray, pray like this, <laughs> Jesus, right. right? Pray this. Um, yeah, when when and when you gather, uh, worship this way. That's body and blood, by the way, right. sacrament. And uh, you know, how do you make disciples? Is by teaching and baptizing together. Mm-hmm. It's clear command. Uh, right. Even the commandments, you know. Um, well, and you see this attempt to make the catechism into what he what Orman refers to as a scholarly system when you go to the Christian questions and their answers. Oh, okay. There's a few that may or may not have been prepared by Luther, and then by the time you get to Leia, there's nine hundred plus questions. Wow. And there is this, and by the way, he expected you to memorize those. Learn for, and commit to memory. For, for when you're examined. For when you're examined. And so you can even see then within the context of the catechism, how we take it. And then we spin it out and say, well, 21 or 22 questions isn't enough. We need 300 questions. Well, the 300 yeah. isn't enough because you don't know what's going... Like Luther could have never comprehended or understood what, what I have to deal with every day. So I'm going to add an extra 600 questions now. Yeah. And then, it's not that those questions are wrong or not helpful to no, ask. They're all biblically-based questions. But, it just but begs the, the, the question, heart. are they really necessary in the context mm. of the small catechism? Or should yeah. they be published as a separate compendium? 
Well, again, it's not really a dogmatic, but by doing so, you're trying to turn it into one, right? Right. right. Where, where you're where you're digging in and you're creating the, this almost, um, oh, I don't know. It, well, it is a system. It becomes a mm-hmm. system. It is. You know, point one, point two, point three, point four, mm-hmm. or point four, point four, point four. Which may know. be the case. That's why we have to constantly bump up the age for catechism because eight year olds can't memorize three hundred and seventy plus questions. Well, and and actually. Um, what is expected of those who would be examined and absolved is that they know the chief parts. Correct. Um, not necessarily the explanations, mm-hmm. you know. Right. The explanations are there for teaching, uh, right. as the head of the household should teach his children, right? Right. right. This is what this means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, we just do it. And again, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not being pejorative. I'm just saying the way we use it is often prohibitive to faith. <laughs> well, it just becomes an academic exercise. Right. Right. Yeah, you know these questions and their answers. Therefore, you're a Christian now. It's like it's like mm. you, you you've studied for the test. Yeah, pretty much. You pass the test. You graduate. On you go. Yeah. So Luther does not deny the importance of his philosophical training, but in contrast to scholastic tradition, he does not construct a scholarly system. Nor does he offer dogmatics that purport to provide security, but for their credibility, actually depend on the reliability of philosophical underpinnings. Yeah, the dogmatics don't work without the philosophy. Was is the point that that he's making here right well and this is what you see with the catechism once it gets into the 16 and 1700s and you see lutherans try and reattach these philosophical presuppositions basically to go back and to repristinate late medieval scholastic theology Mm -hmm. but just spin it out as lutherans or calvinists or and there was a whole dogmatic tradition that comes out of this time lots of dogmatic textbooks lots yeah yeah many many volumes many The confession, we are beggars, does not merely define a position before God. It is an admission of Luther's fallibility before his fellow man. Luther's earliest biographer concludes the history of the reformer's life with the statement, quote, God guard all theologians to keep them from becoming masters in or over scripture. Hmm. That's a danger, isn't it? I got to print that off and post that above my door. Well, of course. I mean, think about it. Uh, in terms of like preaching. It's oh, like, well, I preached this text eight or 10 times before, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, as the case may be. So I kind of know it already and not actually read it. <laughs> right, you know? I don't have to read it anymore. I've got it memorized. Or, well, that might be true actually, but... Um, and you know, therefore, actually, I know everything there is to know. I've, I've executed this text. And there's presumptions then, you know, similar ones where regards to preaching where they say, well we can't hear the same text every year because it's just going to get boring, right? Just like the liturgy. Yeah. Yeah, now, exactly. if we hear yeah. the same text every year, you're you're just going to preach it the same way. It's like, no, actually, context is going to change, right? Yeah, yeah, the true. way that text will get preached next year is going to be quite different because we're going to be in a very different place. Yeah, very rarely. <laughs> I don't do know I, what it is, but yeah. we'll find out when we get there. <laughs> very rarely do I pull a sermon up off my hard drive and look at it and go, yeah, this will work today. Yeah, I've tried it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> To me, I just I feel say. phony. I feel like I just cheated, basically. Well, I mean, there is no plagiarism in the church. And, no, I just mean in the sense yourself. of I didn't do the work. I didn't, and when mm-hmm. I when I preach it, it sounds like something I would have said a year or two or three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. But it's not True. the way I talk now. It's not the way I preach now. It's not like you said what the congregation needs to hear this morning necessarily. Mm-hmm. Right. To your point about healing versus salvation, saving. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Yeah. And that's the that's what happens when you are constantly engaged in translation work or exegetical work. You're constantly being shown things that 
a year ago, that's not the word that jumped out at you. It was this word over here that jumped out at you. So you spent all your time exegeting this Hebrew word, but now this year you're like, oh, but this word now all of a sudden came out at me. And now yeah. I'm going to exegete this Hebrew word. Yeah. And, and like, in the end, it's scripture that ends up having its mastery over you. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 We're like a horse and then we're like a well-trained horse and the trainer just points to the left or the right and we just go mm-hmm. left or right. Yeah. <laughs> the words of my mouth, meditations of our hearts be pleasing. It's like, yeah, he exactly. does that. Which is what I actually say at the altar before I get up mm-hmm. to preach. <laughs> great little psalm, yeah. A great little psalm. So I got nothing else. It's been a short podcast, but school has started and the church year is underway. And people mm. keep people keep bothering me to do things all of a sudden. I know, isn't that funny? It's like all summer long, I have nothing to do. I'm, I'm available and people are off doing their thing. And first two weeks of September, everything kind of congeals and... Yeah, I like. I just like the idea that that uh, being a student of Scripture is is noble, God pleasing. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's where He wants us to be, even yeah. if we're of a brilliant intellect. You know, mm-hmm. one of the, considered one of the greatest scholars of all time, and in, uh, in, in the case of Luther, right. And then here he here he is being like, I'm just a beggar. I'm a student. I'm just right. Um, you know, I'm sitting. I'm in the back of the class mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to the Scriptures. And it's not just a false humility, but it's a. I think it's a true humility that he's got. And that's the staying power of Luther in his biblical lectures. There's so much of Luther in his biblical lectures mm-hmm. that you can anticipate if you got in a time machine and went backwards to sit in his lecture hall, the person that you read on the page would be the person that you see greet you from the lectern. Mm. It's not this dry academic commentary on the text, academic commentary on the text, scholastic commentary on the text. It's Luther standing up in front of his students wrestling with the text in real time yeah saying and yeah, enjoying I, it too I oh mean, very it, much so it's not torturous it's not mm-hmm. I, and again it's not trying to either destroy faith um or what was the other aspect that we had there make it superfluous yeah it's it's, it's yeah we're not just wasting our time here we're not just spinning our wheels but yeah this, this is how um faith is preserved sustained right mm-hmm. it is by was by hearing god's word and, and right studying it hearing it, learning it, mm-hmm. yeah. inwardly digesting it, as the college of the word used there to you say. Go, yeah, is that when people ask that question of the pastor or the pastor's family even, of how is it that you're so devout? Well, I'm not devout. I just spend most of my time in God's word or meditating. Even in on, my house. <laughs> right, exactly. Have you heard my kids? Mm. No, it's like you said, it's more along the lines of, I must decrease that he may increase. I'm not quite sure how that's supposed to happen. So I tell you what, I'm going to read the psalm. Hmm. I'm going to read Psalm 34 this morning, or I'm going to go into Isaiah 61 or mm-hmm. John chapter 1. I'm just going to start digging and and ask that the Lord reveal himself to me. And it helps that you have, you've been placed under this yoke of commitment <laughs> called the, the office of the right, ministry. There is, there are, yeah. Right, we've talked about this, that in in the parish, there is immediate consequences for everything you say. And you take that quite seriously. Thanks mm-hmm. be to God. But but also, I mean, it's a dis- it provides some discipline for you. Absolutely. Personally. Yeah. Not to say everybody should be in in uh, church work. We've talked about that too. <laughs> no, no. You know, but but uh, you know, whatever your your pastor, your parish provides for you to to for that kind of discipline or whatever right. resources you've discovered to do that to right. be in God's word to regularly hear and, and learn it. Um, and never apologize. That's good. Never apologize or try and justify the fact that you spend so much time in God's word. I see way too many pastors trying to justify reading the Bible or preparing for the sermon or whatever, as if there should be a time limit or 
or or just limitations at all on on preparing a teacher to preach. That's why I changed the the sign on the door to not say pastor's office, but pastor's study. Right. When I want to be left alone, I just say I will be available for private confession absolution from this time to this time. <laughs> then nobody shows. Then up. nobody shows up. Exactly. Uh, for for risk that I might actually be absolved. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so. No, it's Overmont's a good read. If if you haven't figured it out by now, we really appreciate and respect the book. It's a great biography, a lot yeah, of thank fun. Overmont make you think a lot. Uh, go check out other Obermann books. Every uh, Harvest of Medieval Theology is one of my favorite history books. I don't think I have that one. I'll have to grab it. We don't have to dive into that one even. Um, hmm. It's not as Lutheran as it gets, but he basically sets the table for the Reformation in that book because hmm. he talks about the harvest of medieval. He's harvesting medieval theology. He's exploring how the reformation happened like mm. where, where are the precursors for the reformation yeah and it's a dense book it's it's not a, a quick read for sure but yeah i love it and it's been republished several times you can get it um go to amazon look it up harvest of medieval theology the roots of anti-semitism i think it's out of print but you can get on amazon again used it's a great book short read i don't even think it's 80 pages okay it's more like a monograph but uh, everything Obermann did historically, I, I really appreciate. I'll put these in the show notes. By the Absolutely. Way. Mm-hmm. Um, so come back uh, next week for a brand new episode. Same bat time, same bat channel. And uh, as I said at the beginning, so I say at the conclusion, we appreciate everything you do. Go leave a positive review for us on iTunes if you uh, like the show mm-hmm. and want to share promote it with the your show. Friends, family. Share it with your friends yeah. and family. Send them, email them a link, text them, um, tell them to get on board. Um, we we like our metrics. We're getting a lot of downloads and a lot of engagement. So I guess you like what we're doing um, or you just like to torture yourself for one to three hours several (laughs) times a week. But uh, we do. We truly appreciate everything you do to support uh, Higher Things and the Ministry of Higher Things. Go check out the other podcasts on the Higher Things website. Go buy Gillespie's Coffee. And uh, what else? I think that's about it. Yeah, that's good. All right. Hope we pass the audition. See you next time. Peace.